Welcome back to our series on um, looking unto Jesus. The title, of course, is taken from that wonderful work from Isaac Ambrose that I heartily uh, recommend. Uh, today, I thought we were going to be studying um, a discourse from John Newton. I, I took this out of a gospel study that I've been working on for, for more than two decades. And I found out that as I was looking at it here in the studio that there's a stanza from John Newton in the middle, which is the the central theme, but that most of it was written by my hand. So I guess today we're not only going to be listening to some old writers from old books, but uh, we're also going to be looking at some that are not so old. So let's go ahead and read, and I hope that it's a blessing to you. Now, the, the primary subject of this discourse is the preeminence and centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's read. There is simply no way to exaggerate the centrality and preeminence of the gospel. It is not the only message in Christianity, but it is first in rank, dignity, and beauty. It does not supplant the other great truths of Scripture, but it is their cornerstone and the prism through which their true wisdom is revealed and comprehended. To put it plainly, there is no Christianity, no religious devotion, and no true spirituality apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. His gospel is the greatest revelation of God to men and angels. It is the only means by which fallen humanity might be saved. And it is the great means by which the Christian is motivated and guided to true piety or godliness. It is the preeminence of Christ and his gospel that led John Newton to write the following stanza. This can be found in his hymn, What Think Ye of Christ? He writes, What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. I go on to write, what think ye of Christ and his gospel? How you and I answer this question will tell all that needs to be told about us. However, we must always remember that our actions are what validate our confessions. If Christ and his gospel are preeminent in our mind and heart, then he will certainly be preeminent in our proclamation, and he will be the preeminent standard to which we seek to be conformed, and he will be the preeminent motivation of our life. In other words, if all is taken from us but this one thing, Christ died for my sins, we would still have our message, our goal, our motivation, and our heart's desire. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to talk about Christ. And yet, Father, well aware of the limitations of the words of the greatest men. So now, Lord, I look at some of the things I have written and see how small they are. But I pray, dear God, that you will use this to encourage your people and especially your ministers to not simply just hear this and go out and preach more of Christ, but hear this. To lament possibly an apathy toward Christ. 
and then to go into their study and spend more time in your word so that Christ and a love for Christ would be kindled in their heart. And then from there, make itself known in their proclamation. Oh, dear God, please help us all. What a great and glorious task has been given us. What a weight, what an oracle, what a burden. Please, Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Help us in Jesus name. Amen. Now, let's go through these words and expound them a bit. There is simply no way to exaggerate the centrality and preeminence of the gospel that speaks for itself. You know, uh, down through the ages, I have heard men who would say things like, we need to be very, very careful of having some sort of idolatry with regard to the scripture. Um, I never understood that statement. The scripture is what tells me about God. And therefore, I, I don't know how I could have an idolatry with regard to the scripture. I don't know how I could think too highly of what God has given me. Because the scriptures are the means through which I learned about Christ and his gospel. You know, the the old authors drawing from Job would say things like the dust of this book is gold. And that's true. But if that is true and or since that is true. If the dust of this book is gold, then how how wonderful. Of what infinite worth is the message of all messages in this book? And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why is the gospel so important? Because it reveals to us the most special person in heaven, in earth, certainly in the mind of God. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel is not the only message in Christianity, but it is first in rank, dignity and beauty. It does not supplant the other great truths of Scripture, but it is their cornerstone and the prism through which their true wisdom is revealed and comprehended. I am disturbed today, especially about many young ministers that are saying it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel to the exclusion of so many other things in Scripture. When we say at least some of us, when we say that it is all about the gospel, we're not excluding any other portion or any other theme in the scriptures. Everything, the glorious law, the historical narratives, the wisdom literature, the prophets, everything points to Christ. But at the same time, everything has its place. There is not one jot or tittle of the scripture that we ought to ignore or neglect because we make the boast it's all about the gospel. To do so is foolishness and demonstrates that we do not understand the gospel. He goes on. To put it plainly, or I go on, <laughs> to put it plainly, there is no Christianity, no religious devotion, and no true spirituality apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, I have said many times that um, we could be very popular preachers like myself. We could be very popular even among the secular 
uh, media and the secular world if we would only change one small article. If we would change in our preaching the definite article for an indefinite article. If we were to proclaim that Jesus is our Savior, or Jesus is my Savior, or Jesus is a Savior, the world would applaud us. But when we say Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Redeemer, to the exclusion of all other so-called would-be saviors, that's when we will feel the hostility of the world. So if you want to shy away from the world's hostility, then just change one little article. But in doing so, you've ruined your own soul and you've perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great scandal of the gospel is that we do not say Jesus is a truth, a way, or a life. But we say he is the truth, the way, and the life. Go on. His gospel is the greatest revelation of God to men and angels. It is the only means by which fallen humanity might be saved, and it is the great means by which the Christian is motivated and guided to true piety or godliness. Now, I want us to look at three things here. First of all, I say... The gospel is the greatest revelation of God to men and angels, and that is true. As a matter of fact, the clearest picture of theology proper, the clearest revelation we have of the doctrine of God, the attributes of God, is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and particularly the cross. The old writers spoke a great deal about the harmony of the attributes of of God in the cross of Christ, William Bates in particular. And, and the whole idea is this. Prior to the cross, the, the philosophical, theological struggle was how could God be righteous and at the same time merciful to sinful men who deserve judgment? If he was merciful, was that not a violation of his righteousness? If he was um, compassionate and had pity and drew the sinner to himself, would that not be an offense to his holiness? How can you reconcile the two things? And it's in the cross of Christ where we see all the attributes of God perfectly reconciled as they are. Yes, he is righteous. Yes, he is just. Yes, he is holy. And he demonstrates that. When we hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we see that the active wrath of God is poured out on his only begotten son, we see that God is holy and that he is merciful. And yet at the same, well, not only that he's holy and that he's righteous, but also that he's merciful. Why? Because the wrath that was due the sinner was poured out on the son. And because of his works and his death and his resurrection, the sinner can be saved without the least offense to the attributes of God, any of the attributes of God. Now, let's go on. So it's the greatest revelation of God to men and angels. Never forget that. Not just to men, but to angels. That's why Peter tells us that the angels are are leaning into the gospel. To get a better look. If if beings so superior, so much superior to us 
would find it their primary duty to lean in and observe and learn more of God through the gospel. How much more those of us who are made of clay? How often have we neglected? The best. What we were called for, saved for what we were made for, leaning in, looking at the gospel. Now, so it's the greatest revelation of God to men and angels. It is the only means by which fallen humanity may be saved. Again, there, right there, is the scandal of Christianity. That he is not a way, he is the way. He is not a savior, he is the savior. Also, the gospel is the greatest means by which the Christian is motivated and guided to true piety or godliness. That is so true. It is so true. All the scripture, the law, the wisdom, the prophetic literature, the gospels, its narratives, the didactic material, the commands of, script, of the New Testament, they all teach us how to live. They reveal God to us. So in another sense, they also are a motivation. But the greatest motivation to piety. And when I mean piety, I mean separation from one thing and a running to another separation from this fallen world, its ideas, its politics, its attitudes, disposition, its actions. Shunning that, running away from it and, and, and running to a relationship with God and running to God's commands and God's directives and God's will. True piety, the motivation for it is primarily what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pull away here for just a second and um, show you proof of that. And I think one of the most wonderful passages in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this. He gives two motivations for, for his actions, for the focus of his life. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, verse 8, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be, to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent to be pleasing to him. Paul's goal in everything he did was to be pleasing to God. Now he's going to show us his motivation here. He says immediately after in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I want you to see something, brother. There is a there is a judgment even for the believer. Not with regard to salvation. It does not determine the measure of God's love for that person. But there is a judgment. And we must hold those things in tension. There is a reward. And so that was one of Paul's motivations. He says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he goes on in verse 11 to describe that as knowing the fear of the Lord. So that's one motivation. But what is the great motivation? Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, constrains us, determines everything about us, having concluded this, that one died for all and therefore 
all died and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Do you see that? Paul says the love of Christ controls us. Now, what you need to understand here is Paul is not saying boasting of his love for Christ. He's not saying my great love for Christ controls me because Paul was of common stock of Adam. He was like us in many ways. He was not a perfect individual. His love was up. His love was down. His love was unstable as any man, the best of men. So it wasn't Paul's love for Christ that motivated him. But the love of Christ for Paul that motivated him. And how is that love most manifest? Paul says. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. There it is right there. You want to grow in your passion. For God, the will of God, the work of God. Study Christ. Study Christ. Lay aside all these self-help books and motivational literature. Find yourself a Bible. Get on your knees. Study Christ. Cry out to God. I want to know Christ. And it's that love of God in Christ that will control you and constrain you. Now, he says, and it is the great means by which the Christian is motivated and guided to true piety and godliness. Now we come to John, uh, John Newton, finally. He wrote a very precious hymn called What Think Ye of Christ? And he says this, What think ye of Christ is the test? To try both your state and your scheme, you cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. So he's saying what you think about Christ is the true test of everything about you, especially your spirituality. It tells us about your spiritual state and it tells us about your scheme, your ambition in life, your plans, your purposes. You know, we need to be very, very careful that love for Christ is not replaced by desire for an effective ministry. Always the scheme of our life ought to be to be pleasing to the one who died for us. And he says, you cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. One of the great problems in evangelicalism, if that word even means anything anymore, is an undefined Christ. An undefined Christ. When someone says they believe in Jesus or they trust in Christ, terms must now be defined because it means so many different things to so many people. And that is why, again, if you're a minister of Christ and you have a preaching ministry, you must be teaching theology. You must be teaching doctrine. You know, I have often said that Sunday morning, could be at times the greatest hour in the week of idolatry because so many people get together and raise their hands and sing worship songs to a God, to a Christ they cannot define biblically. And that is the fault of their minister by and large. That's the fault of all of us who bear a mantle of preaching. Let's go on. 
I have written what think ye of Christ and his gospel, how you and I answer this question will tell all that needs to be told about us. However, we must always remember that our actions are what validate our confession. He says never that you shall know them by their confessions. You shall know them by their fruits. And the fruit tells us the nature of the tree. What we do reveals the nature of the sincerity of our confession. If Christ and his gospel are preeminent in our mind and heart, then he will certainly be preeminent in all our proclamation. Are you a self-help preacher? Are you helping people to get their best life now? Are you aiding them in their self-realization and prosperity? Is your preaching all about principles? Then you are not God's man. You are not. Does every fad in culture somehow have an influence on your preaching so that you're like one in the pulpit blown around by every wind of doctrine? Those men who belong to God, they have a central theme and it doesn't change. It is Jesus Christ and his gospel. And they do not take their cues from what is popular in culture or politic or academics. They take their cue from what is preeminent in scripture. And that is most certainly without argument, Jesus Christ and his gospel. So he will be preeminent in our proclamation. He will be the preeminent standard to which we seek to be conformed. Remember, especially those of us who are ministers of Christ, that um, the qualifications, non-negotiable qualifications of the ministry in First Timothy three and Titus one have to do with character. And our goal is not simply to gather information, but to gather information that we might love him more, be more devoted to him, be more effective ministers, but most certainly to be more conformed to his image. It says, and he will be preem the preeminent motivation of our life. Sometimes I hear preaching and I know that it's sincere, but it's misdirected when they tell people over and over, the calling card of the gospel seems to be come to Christ and he will help you fix the thing that is most precious to you, whether it's your finances or your marriage or your family or your children or your workplace. That's in some ways nothing more than another form of idolatry. We come to Christ because of Christ. We serve Christ because of Christ because of who he is and what he has already done in that singular work of redemption on Golgotha. In other words, if all is taken from us, but this one thing, Christ died for my sins. We would still have our message, our goal, our motivation and our hearts. Desire. Well, I think about that. I think about this often. If all is taken from me, but this one thing, Christ died for my sins, I still have my message. I still have my message. I still have my goal. 
I still have my motivation. And I still have my heart's desire. Christ crucified and raised from the dead. You can tell me that story over and over and over again, day after day, year after year. And my heart will not tire of it. I hope this has been helpful. And I guess we could say, because we do have Newton here, this is why we read old books, but maybe also why we should every once in a while read a new one. God bless you, and I hope this has been helpful.